In this episode, we're going to talk about how to read eye movements, which is called eye access cueing. It's a technique you can use that really what it does is show you how somebody else's brain is processing, accessing information. While this by itself is not necessarily a way to detect deception, it can help you when looking at body language clusters and analyzing the dialogue to determine whether or not they could be deceptive. And it definitely is a wonderful tool to help establish a baseline on somebody's mental state or mental patterns and how they're giving information. This is a wonderful tool, not just in interrogation or talking to sources, but what it's really great for is things like interviews, questioning that matters, or just seeing how much somebody really remembers something when they tell a story. So IXSQing, part of NLP, Neuro Linguistics Programming. That's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. So the plan was to actually put this out a couple days ago, but I got to tell you, that election wore me out, and I never thought I would say that. I did a five-hour kind of live tracking of the progress before it pretty much all slowed down with David Robertson from DMR Publications. And my back was hurting for sitting here for five hours, took some meds. Next thing I know, it's 7 a.m., and I'm still looking at these charts, and I slept for four hours, and then I spent all day doing it again, and then I just had to stop myself. So I was just a little bit too tired. But anyway, I access queuing. So I've got an article in the show notes. It'll be great to look at that article to follow along or to listen to this another time, but you don't need it if you're like driving in a car. I definitely can give you the visual descriptions. This is a really great article. It's very simple and to the point. It's got some intro paragraphs, very simple descriptions and examples of how this works. And I'm going to go a little bit further into it. There's a few things, though, we need to discuss and kind of cover first about this. While I always say there's no such thing as really a singular indication of deception when looking at body language, body posture, and these types of things, it's definitely true with IXS queuing. It definitely can supplement the idea of looking for deception, but it's really about understanding how their brain is accessing and processing information. Now, this can be faked, but only in the interim, like for a few seconds or for a specific question or more likely when they're talking and telling a story instead of, say, responding to a story. Somebody who's trained in it understands that in body language that can do mirroring and matching or purposely put up deceptive body language and throw out the eye movement while telling a story, which is something I do in training with my interrogators and people I've trained for JSOC as part of getting them to learn how to read these movements and the eyes. And then if we get far enough, actually tell things that are very true and provable, but show them that they can read as deceptive with somebody that's trained, just as an example. So know that going in. The other thing, too, is one of the things you'll read in this article, we'll talk about people that are left-handed. Before we get into that, understand this. I think it's the World Atlas or Statistica that does the studies, and it shows that about 17% on average across the world are left-handed because it states that you got about a 1 in 17% chance of having a left-handed child. The other thing, though, is that varies by country. So in the Middle East, where I send most of these interrogators, intelligence guys that run sources, is the numbers are extremely, extremely low, sometimes less than 1%. So I tell them to ignore this theory. And I call it a theory because there's two opposing points of view. One point of view is that regardless of being left-handed or right-handed, and please understand, I'm not a neurologist or a scientist. I only understand how the brain works when accessing information. I'm not... I couldn't tell you how it works itself like a doctor. 
One school of thought that you can find plenty of studies on state that whether or not you're left-handed doesn't matter. It's like regardless of that, your brain works a certain way. You're going to follow certain patterns because of left and right brain, etc. Other studies indicate that while you most likely will tend to follow one pattern, those that are left-handed are probably going to follow the exact opposite. So these interrogators, I tell them to ignore that. I tell them just go with the standard pattern. With your questioning plans, the things they should reasonably know, especially with the examples I give you, because a lot of it's innocuous information to establish a baseline and get them talking. Figure out if there's a pattern. And if tons and tons of it doesn't make sense and it looks like the exact opposite, you probably have somebody whose brain works differently. And you can sometimes verify or supplement that assessment by getting them to use their hands. Things that you would naturally do right-handed or left-handed. A lot of these guys couldn't write or would claim they couldn't write, so sometimes they would smoke, though. A lot of them would give them cigarettes. While not always the case, people that are right or left-handed tend to primarily hold the cigarette in their non-dominant hand. So there's things that you can do in these situations to verify this. So we're going to stick with this simple idea of one single pattern, and just remember that. If you already know somebody's left-handed, or even better, with your questioning, answering, and just watching them tell a story, whatever they're doing... If there's things that make sense, you're probably on the right pattern. If most of it's not making sense and appears to be the exact opposite, then you got somebody you know whose brain works differently. The thing is, that's going to be very, very rare. Now, in my experience, I never ran anybody who broke this pattern when I worked for the military or the government in the Middle East. That's about half my experience. The other half is in the Western world. And a lot of it in the last three, four years was interviewing people who work with JSOC. I ran into a few less than 10 to my recollection. I still have the notes on a lot of them. Now that's my experience. I'm sure that I've done it purposefully more than you have, but that doesn't mean a year from now you couldn't exceed that. So just remember that it's rare, but it definitely does exist. Now the idea here is picture a face, somebody else that you're looking at. So remember when you look at this article, you're not looking in a mirror, you're looking at another person. Ignore what they say about upper left or upper right or lower left or lower right. The reason I say that is if you find more articles on this, some people will explain it the exact opposite. This article explains upper left as your upper left looking at another person. Other schools of thought will say upper left is the upper left of the person you're looking at. So we're just going to ignore that confusion. Imagine a clock, odd numbers, one, three, five, seven, nine, 11. I'm going to explain it to you that way so that we lose the confusion here. You're looking at another person's face and you're tracking eye movements. One, three, five, seven, nine, and 11. Now, one of the questions I get asked too is about the amount of movement. Like, is it over-exaggerated? Does it mean something that's not too dissimilar from body language? It doesn't really matter if you need technology that you don't have access to to see subtle movements. It doesn't matter if their eye moves halfway or all the way to the edge um, to where you know you can't look any farther. Some people will tilt their head a little bit with it. Sometimes they'll make a whole body movement. I've even seen people in swivel chairs and in interviews reposition their entire body just because it's easier. If they make a subtle movement to a big movement, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Most of the time it doesn't. Now, if you see a consistent pattern of smaller movements and then they make a bigger movement, I'd take note of that, but I'd just ask why. Did you ask a question that made them go, huh, something that really got them? That might be the reason why. So there's other factors to consider. So don't get hung up on the amount of movement indicating something more or less strength or significance to what you're asking. 
this is a definite example of subconscious movement that you cannot control, only temporarily and usually only for a few seconds. Now, when we're looking at their face, what we have, we're going to start with 111 and 3 and 9. Basically, they're the opposites, which I will make very simple for you. 1 and 11 are visual, 3 and 9 are auditory. What that means is the brain is accessing information through a series of images, whereas 3 and 9 tend to be sounds. This kind of supports the idea of somebody who's more of a visual thinker versus an auditory thinker. Now, here's the thing. Everybody does both. You're going to do both. In fact, if you access your own memories and you tend to be a visual thinker and somebody asks you a question that should elicit an auditory response, you may show the auditory movement. You may show the visual movement. Even if you tend to always show visual, just because you show auditory doesn't mean you're not seeing images in your head. So don't think it's only one. So what we have on the right side as we're looking at them, one and three, is what's called recall. What that means is their brain is accessing information that they either know, their brain believes or knows, or should reasonably know. So some of the examples they give in here, examples I use, is imagine something when you grew up, what's the color of the first car, the type of first car you had, what's the color of the front door of your first house. Even if you can't figure that out, your brain knows it should know that, so it tends to show that response of recall. And when you're asking it solely like that as an image, you probably are going to have visual recall. But I will tell you, there are times you'll see auditory recall on that question. Why is that? Somebody that tends to be more of an auditory thinker may very well see the images in their head, but their brain may access those memories based on the sounds. So they might be thinking about being on their sidewalk, looking at that house, hearing the birds, hearing the wind, hearing the cars drive by. So if you were to see something like that on either a visual or auditory question where it seems to be showing the exact opposite, what's important is they're demonstrating a form of recall and you're asking a question that logically should be recall. Auditory is the same thing, works the same way. Now 11 and 9 are constructed, meaning they have to create that image. Examples they give in here is, I think they say, imagine a purple elephant or imagine the first car you own being purple and white polka dots or something like this. The other thing too is when people tell stories, we see this a lot. You'll definitely see this with somebody who tells stories or tells a story so many times or something where you were there and there's little things that aren't too significant that aren't accurate from your recollection of it. doesn't mean they're lying. Their brain may or may not have all that information. Sometimes their brain is just recalling the facts and images and sounds that they tend to access most when telling that story. And then what they'll do is show construction movements because they're filling in the gaps. It's kind of like if you have a memory from your child and your parents were there and they tell you it wasn't the way it was, but God, you swear it was. That's because of the type of information your brain took in at that time. Plus, it's a long time ago. This is why when people tell stories, even ourselves, sometimes we have to fill in the blank a little bit. It may not be that significant. And then people are like, that's not what happened. This is what's happened. It's not really their fault and doesn't mean it's deception. There are other ways to tell other body language movements you need. But just understand that's going to happen. And the reason I give that description is when somebody's just answering a single question, you tend to see a movement. And then when they start speaking, especially if it's a sentence, you may see multiple movements. If they're telling you a story like in that example, you'll see the eyes go everywhere. 
So they might be telling you a story about something that happens, and then you start seeing recall and construction movements. Might see a lot of recall, probably mostly visual or auditory. A lot of times it's going to be visual when telling a story. If it's not related to sound, like say a concert. And then they say, oh, and then this happened. This guy said, uh, he said this. And they say it like that. And you realize, oh, they do audio construction. That's logically makes sense. And then you may see them as they're telling the story, doing a lot of recall. And it's not like their eyes stay over. They're just moved there for each little piece they get. And then they throw in a little construction here and there. And you realize there's something about that they don't entirely remember. This is why I waited so long to do this, because while this is a great way to start if you have a coach and you're doing this professionally and you have other things you're learning about body language, that's great. But if you don't know or learn to identify deception through dialogue or body movements, it's very easy to get sucked in this and just say they did this, therefore they're lying. It's like there is nothing to support that scientifically or logically. That's just not how it works. And when you read each of these paragraphs, you'll see some really great descriptions of questions, which will help fill in the blank a little more and add on to the examples I gave to show you how this works and should help you understand why by itself it's a bad idea to try to use this to detect deception. The next two we have are the five and seven position, which are a little bit more unique. So on the five o'clock position, we have what we call internal dialogue. And this is basically a similar idea to talking to yourself in a way. There's some people that do this a lot. I do it sometimes in certain situations where I show internal dialogue because even though I may be speaking smoothly without interruption, the way my brain processes stuff, because my brain moves really fast. I mean, people that know me are like, how'd you go from point A to point B so quick? And as fast as I can describe, it takes 10 times longer than it took for me to do it. What will happen is they're showing internal dialogue, constructing those sentences, may even see them in sentence form, might even be processing them. What's a better way to say this while still talking? And it shows internal dialogue. Another example of internal dialogue they give in here is to say, do the ABCs in your head. They may show internal dialogue for that. Internal dialogue by itself is not an indicator of deception. There'll be other factors leading up to that where that could identify deception, but it's fairly rare. Then we have the 7 o'clock position, which is called feelings or kinesthetic. So these are two types of feelings. We're looking at emotional feelings and tactile touch, meaning the feeling, the sensation of touching something. So for tactile touch, it could just be things like asking them to imagine what it likes to feel something, or if they're describing the physical sensation of feeling something, you know, touching a wet rug is an example they give. What's it like to feel the cool breeze blow on your skin after getting out of a lake? Very likely you'd see things like this. I mostly see the emotional side of it when I talk to people. And that's what we call the internal feelings where a sensation is external. So what I tend to see is, Discussions on things that tend to bring about an emotional response or I just identify there's an emotional response there that may be positive or negative. When I did these in these interviews for JSOC, one of the things we'd have people write is a biography. and They'd often talk about their family, of course. And there's things I would identify in there about they have a strong relationship with this parent and the other one. They don't like this parent. They don't like their parents at all. They love both their parents. Their parents are there, but their closest relationship is their sister we'd have them talk about these types of things or their spouse or their boyfriends and we'd see a lot of this movement to the seven o'clock area for the emotions because of the strong emotional connection that may be positive or negative sometimes during these interviews we would see people that were married or engaged had wedding rings on we already knew they were kind of nervous we'd see them start to grab that wedding ring finger kind of massage that finger for comfort and then you would see them look towards the seven o'clock position when they were feeling nervous you may see him do that when they were talking about, say, a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend. 
And of course, you'd see other things like smiling or blushing, those types of responses that would also support this. It would demonstrate how these movements worked to communicate some sort of emotional bond, which could be positive or negative. These are very helpful. And it is this simple. Just understand the eyes aren't always moving. Sometimes they don't move at all or you can't see them. Ideally, you want to be probably within 6 to 10 feet. A little bit farther, you can see the movements if they're bigger. If they're subtle, they're hard to see from a farther distance. They're not going to be constant. Depending on the environment and the situation, they may not look at you the whole time. So when I did these interviews, one form of the interviews, we sat on a table, two, three tables spread out. And we'd have several people there, maybe six to eight people, and they would sit centered in front of us. And they would be about eight feet from me as I would be direct center. Another situation, we used long U-shaped tables, and I sat almost exactly opposite them on the short sides where I couldn't really read their eye movements because I was about 25 feet away. So the reason you want to be that close is just hard to see. It's also, though, you have to remember that if you're just sitting there staring in their eyes, people will start to dart their eyes around and start changing their body movements for avoidance. You know, look for that foot pointing somewhere like they want to get out of there. Sometimes we cause that by staring hard too much. So you have to have some natural movements. You have to look around and do things. So I would stare hard at them in these interviews, but not when they were seeing me. I always had paper in front of me. I was taking notes. I would have people I was coaching through this process, which made it easier to break contact so they didn't have that sensation of somebody staring at me all the time. And we found these to be very useful tools. This is great for anybody. Just remember it can't be controlled, only temporary. Doesn't matter how old a person is. Just because somebody's a child doesn't mean it's more significant than if somebody's 50. It's just a tool that you can use and you can couple this in with all the other body language techniques or your exploration of dialogue, phrases, and statements to figure out whether or not something's deceptive or whether or not it's truthful. And this is actually more helpful when it's truthful. It's great if you can establish this baseline by asking those innocuous questions that make sense in a normal conversation about imagining this or what's that like. Or when we would talk to people interrogated, we always went in first with flies with honey almost every time. And they would tell us about something, your family, whatever. We'd have them tell us about it. We'd ask them questions, get them talking, get them more comfortable. We would use this opportunity to look at how they're phrasing things, make sure it makes sense and it's logical. And we track their eye movements to establish the baseline of whether or not they displayed what we call upper left recall. But for this purpose, we're going to stay with a clock so there's no confusion. That would help other interrogators know that they've displayed that and it wouldn't take them long to verify that baseline when they started talking to them. Then we get into questions of information we either know or think they should know. And we would use our eye movements to support our belief or understanding of whether or not they're being deceptive with other body language movements. Of course, coupled with questioning, you're able to come out with a high degree of accuracy and figure out what things they do want to talk about, what things they don't. So you can find out things when you're talking to somebody. Seems fine and normal to you, but they're showing a lot of emotional stuff. They're kind of getting quiet, kind of getting closed off, hunched over, maybe turning away, indicating to you that whatever it is, they don't want to talk about. They don't have to. And it's showing a strong emotional response. It's significant to them in a negative way. Sometimes you'll see them do the exact opposite and open up and realize it's a very positive emotional thing that they want to talk about. So just remember... It's about how their brain accesses information. It's not about whether or not you believe they should recall something or whether you believe something to be true and they construct it. This goes back to when I said there'd be plenty of sources that showed no signs of deception and total signs of cooperation and truthfulness, but their information was inaccurate. 
And we've tried to figure out why that is. And it's typically because that's what they really believe to be true. They weren't lying. They just didn't know it was wrong. So do remember that. Another thing to take note of is sometimes people move their eyes rather quickly. And it can be difficult to see, especially when you're more than a few feet away. The other thing, too, is remember when I mentioned at the beginning, whether or not you're just slightly moving your eyes or repositioning your entire body, it all means essentially the same thing, although it's mostly just going to be their head. The rest of their body may fall a little bit. There are people that very rarely show eye movements or you don't really see them because they'll actually move their head and look up or sideways or down in any of these positions on the clock. That's fine. It can be that if they've had a regular established pattern eye movements, they're showing other signs of deception, and then they move their head away. It supports the eye movement, the cue of what it is, but you don't see their eyes. It's possible that could be deception. But you're not always going to see the eyes move. Sometimes you might see somebody that doesn't seem like they move at all, and they're just constantly staring at you. But what else are they doing? Are they firmly got their feet planted on the form, real rigid? Are they white-knuckled? Are they tense? They're going to show less sense of movement. Why are they tense? They're definitely uncomfortable or nervous. But the question is why? This is why I want to talk about body language and mirroring and matching about ideally, if you go in, speak nice, try to match your speech pattern, talk a little bit more like them, not too far below or above them in your use of language, using your body positions, whatever environment you're in or have created, like we do when we talk to these guys, make them more comfortable and more open. It's a lot easy for them to start speaking and communicating. And a lot of times it'll just get there quicker, even if they don't want to do it. There's very few people unless they're hardcore devout in an interrogation situation and they just want to kill you, they probably won't do it. But not all of them, just some. Typically, you make the right conditions and you support those conditions with your own body posture. You can make people feel more comfortable. Makes it easier to identify why are they uncomfortable. And then maybe making them comfortable comes through that conversation. How do you get them to open up? And you have to be prepared for this and practice and prepare for it so that if for some reason you're choosing to be deceptive to get them to open up, they don't catch on to it, but just understand, most of that's subconscious. Subconsciously, they'll probably pick up on it. So you get farther being as truthful as possible. Remember, truth and fact are not the same thing. Giving them what they want or getting them to believe you have something they want, using all this openness and comfortableness and getting them to communicate, and then you can see body language a lot more noticeable and eye movements because the more relaxed and comfortable they are, the less they're going to respond, which is good because when they do respond, it's more noticeable. The more tense and rigid they are or closed off that they are, the less they'll make movements. And it's going to be harder to see because they'll be so rigid, they won't even make the little ones all that often. Whereas people that are more comfortable, they'll not only be more noticeable for deceptive movements, but their regular positive movements will just be a continual flow. So just remember, don't try to use this to detect deception. Read this article, check this out, try the experiments. Just think about it the next time you're sitting down with somebody having a conversation. Think about it when you're watching a video of somebody, as long as they're not using a teleprompter. Try to start with people you know. This is a good one to start with people you know. Don't tell them what you're doing. Don't go after politicians or celebrities that people you definitely like or definitely don't like. It's very easy for your bias to cloud that and make excuses. You don't want to make excuses for movements. You don't want to make assumptions about the movements. You just want to read them. You just want to get in the flow of understanding them. And then while you practice your body language and verbal deception, detection, you can see how these start to work together and it'll become segment nature. When I interview people and talk to them, I focus heavily on eye movements, 
and other body positioning. And then in my periphery, somewhat of a periphery, I guess, I pick up some of these other movements and notice them. And I'm able to process them really quick with the eye movements and their verbal statements to determine whether or not they're being deceptive. Are they just tense? Are they closed off? Are they open? Are they telling me the truth? Whatever it is. And I do this all the time. It takes conscious effort. But just reference that. Watch a video of somebody. Or just talk to your kid. Talk to an adult. Whatever you need to do, practice it. And you'll start seeing this stuff match up. So that's the down and dirty on IXS cuting bar of NLP, how to read eye movements. If you've got any questions about this, shoot me a question. Don't forget to like and subscribe or like and share on any platform that you're on. You can find my contact information in the show notes as well as this article. You can reach me on MeWe, ProtonMail, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another episode here shortly on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight.